This is the Journal of American History podcast for April 2015. Kristen G. Appy is professor of history at University of Massachusetts Amherst and the author of three books about the Vietnam War, Working Class War, American Combat Soldiers in Vietnam, published by the University of North Carolina Press in 1993, Patriots, the Vietnam War Remembered from All Sides, published by Viking in 2003, and the book that we're speaking about with him today, uh, just released, American Reckoning, the Vietnam War and Our National Identity, published by Viking uh, 2015. Chris, thanks so much for taking the time to do this. Thanks for having me, Ed. So why don't we begin? Uh, I think it would be helpful for listeners. It certainly would be helpful uh, for me for you to reflect on this trilogy of books that you've done about the war. They're they're very distinct, uh, and yet they're related in many ways. But this has been a fascinating journey that's now spanned for you uh, over a quarter of a century. Yeah, you know, I don't have a dramatic personal story to help explain why it is that I've devoted most of my life to this uh, subject, because I was, uh, you know, a 10 to 15-year-old kid during the major years of combat in the late 60s, but and, you know, I wasn't tracking it particularly closely, but did at uh, at a, a really did feel the emotional undertow of that time and that war. And I have to say that I, I felt going off to college in the mid-'70s some pretty powerful obligation to, to learn about it, and that really stuck with me. It was also a time in the 70s where a lot of exciting history was being done. That's, those are the days when people were talking about doing history from the bottom up, and it had not yet turned into a cliché. And I, I was very inspired by that, so I was starting to think of myself as you know, a potential labor historian, certainly a social historian. So when I was fishing around for a Ph.D. topic, I thought, wow, I, I still do want to learn more about this Vietnam War, but I'm also interested in the lives and experiences of working people. So if I could somehow get to know a lot of Vietnam vets who I just, you know, sort of is clear to me, lived in, uh, where I was living at the time, lived in places like Dorchester, Massachusetts, that if I interviewed them, I would learn not only a lot more about working class life and experience, but I, I would learn a heck of a lot about that war. And that, that proved to be actually, I think, a, a pretty good uh, intuition. Um, and it did culminate in my PhD thesis, which was the basis of that first book, Working, working Class War. And, you know, just one further comment on it, it just was so striking that the vets, even though they reflected a great diversity of experiences and political positions, uh, they made so vivid to me the, the striking uh, contrast between the war, the way the war was explained and justified by policymakers and, and the lived experience, the realities they felt uh, on the ground. And I've always been fascinated by uh, historic, the big historical questions of how decisions made by the powerful uh, impinge on the lives of ordinary people. So after after doing that first book, you know, I typically typically it takes me ten or twelve years to do a book, but that's that's only because afterwards I figure, well, I'm not going to do another book about Vietnam, so I fritter around on something else that never comes to fruition, and then go back to the subject, uh, which is what happened with uh, Patriots. It just it occurred to me in the '90s that 
the scholarship on the war had become ever more specialized and fragmented, and uh, it really would be useful to have a book that that, that tried to take on its sort of something commensurate with its uh, scale and uh, length uh, and diversity of experience. So I decided to try to do this huge comprehensive oral history that would include the accounts of people on all sides of the war, Vietnamese as well as Americans, uh, policymakers as well as combatants at all level, uh, anti-war activists, uh, medical personnel, journalists, and so forth. So that's what I did. You know, I ran around the country in Vietnam, did 350 interviews, and ended up using about 135 of them for that oral history. And then again, you know, after working on a few other things, I found myself uh, daily agonizing over the ongoing wars in Iraq and Afghanistan and the sort of maddening sense that, that, that our policymakers at least had learned none of the important lessons of the Vietnam War and all the wrong ones. And once again, we found ourselves mired in, in, in wars fought under false pretext in which we were sending troops to faraway countries to the impossible mission of fighting bloody counterinsurgencies in countries where they were widely perceived as uh, foreign invaders, that we were fighting these wars far after the American public had, had turned against them and that we were failing to achieve our stated objectives. So, I mean, that all of that seemed like so bizarrely uh, parallel to the experience of Vietnam. And it, it just struck me that I, I really needed a, a book that went, went back uh, and asked a very fundamental question. Uh, how is it that that war affected the way we think about ourselves as a nation and a people. And, and my sense is that, you know, we'd really forgotten a, a lot of the big questions and answers that we had that we had once sort of awakened to back in the 60s. So, hmm. uh, And I also, after Patriots, you know, I kind of took a step back in Patriots to let the personal accounts of the oral histories take uh, center stage. And so it felt like I, I needed and wanted to uh, finally do a book that really reflected my my own arguments and, and ideas about the war. So sure. that that's sort of the origin of this of this last book. Yeah, yeah. Thank you. When uh, when you were interviewing the the vets for working class war, was there tremendous uh, contrast, differences, tensions in? how they understood uh, what they were asked to do, what their experiences were. Did it make a difference with the people you were interviewing if they were there in, say, 66 or 67 or 71 or, or 72? To some extent, though, I, I think that change over time can be uh, overdrawn, uh, though it is true that the the forces over there were more genuinely volunteers in that earlier period and certainly more steeped in the... Um, uh, and, and it had internalized more fully uh, the, the sort of the uh, idealistic under, underpinnings of the uh, early 1960s and, and Kennedy's call to service. But that did not uh, leave them immune to a sense of betrayal. And in fact, uh, some of those guys who fought in 65 and 66 r- really felt the realities of the, of the war in, w- in ways that were profoundly embittering and, mm. and betraying. But it's also the case that after the Tet Offensive, we were really getting more and more draftees coming over that had you know, experienced much of the home front discord uh, over the war, were already coming to the war with a series, of, with a kind of skepticism that was, had, been, had been missing from the, sort of the, uh, the, the initial years of escalation. 
So there are there are important changes, and it is, of course, uh, even though many of the early soldiers felt embittered, it didn't really result in a GI movement of the unprecedented size that began to occur in 69, 70, and 71, where you had skyrocketing desertions and um, you know so troops turning on their officers and um, pretty endemic uh, combat avoidance, if not flat out. In some cases, there was flat out uh, combat refusal or, mm-hmm. or, or incident, incidents of uh, mutiny. Uh, so much so that by the end of the war, I honestly believe that the American military command was as worried about fielding a functional uh, force of Americans uh, as they were fighting uh, the enemy. You know, there was that old bumper sticker from the 60s that goes something like, uh, what if they have a war and nobody shows up? Mm-hmm. Which was at the time sort of thought, I, you know, I, uh, as a kind of dreamy, silly thing. Of course, the powerful state can always field a, a, <laughs> field, uh, a, a military. But, you know, by the end of the war, there was, there was really something to that. Yeah, yeah. And now, uh, Chris, an impossible question for you about patriots, but <laughs> I'm interested if anything <laughs> comes to mind. I... I remember the first time I read it on almost every page, there was uh, something new and startling and and compelling. Um, And and maybe you'll even think of something that isn't in the book. Is, is there one interview that took you just completely by, by surprise that, that you remember off the top of your head? Sure. I mean, well, there are a lot, but you know, I, I think for, for me, the interviews with the Vietnamese were the ones that were the most mind-blowing because um, to hear the accounts, and I, I remember it, it, it particularly vividly this one day uh, in Hanoi where I was interviewing a group of five women. I, I didn't typically do group interviews, but this somehow worked, and they kind of fed off each other, and they were all at that point sort of in their mid-50s, but as young uh, teenagers, as, as some of them as young as 15 and 16, had volunteered to go out and work on the Ho Chi Minh trails, uh, literally to help construct them and clear them, but then after that to maintain them under the, the fairly constant American bombing. So these, these girls would have to uh, rush out at any time of day or night to try to fill in the bomb craters with rocks and dirt and, and uh, sometimes make uh, these, these uh, little dams to uh, avert water from the trail and all under intense pressure because they knew that maybe a, a truck convoy would be coming down the road in the next hour and, you know, uh, living under unbelievable conditions, not just the, the, the danger of the bombing, but um, uh, almost all of them became malnourished. Without exception, they got malaria, very severe forms of it where their, their hair was falling out. And many of them returned so beaten down uh, from the experience that a uh, substantial number of them lost their uh, fertility and their ability to bear children. So those, those were just, you know, mm. like extraordinarily powerful testimonies. And there, there, there are a number of those uh, in the book that, sta- that stand with me. Yeah, thank you. So help us understand a little bit, uh, bef- before we move into uh, focusing on American reckoning, just a kind of broad mapping of the changing historiography about the war, maybe uh, sort of generations of interpretation and contestation. I remember uh, years ago, uh, reading Gunter Louis' America and Vietnam, mm-hmm. and then more recently, right. some military historians uh, uh, d- sort of passionately defending uh, both strategy and tactics in, in the war. And um, I'm, so I'm interested in those generations. And then also your sense of, has there been and is there continued uh, 
a kind of split between historians of the academy and uh, military historians positioned outside the academy. Mm-hmm. Well, that's a huge topic, so I'll do my best, because it's a vast literature. I mean, somebody... Uh, some some uh, estimates are that there are now 30,000 titles on, on one or another subject-related uh, aspect of this history. I, I would say that there has been now kind of uh, a conventional wisdom that the um, historiography of the war is divided between this uh, so-called anti-war orthodoxy and this more pro-war revisionism, a uh, much smaller group, and that that, that that has really been there uh, since the beginning, even going back to the, the book you referenced, Louis, which came out, uh, Gunter Louis in the late 70s, mm-hmm. uh, and, and, and you know, on through uh, to works like uh, Michael Lynn's The Necessary War, the works of Louis Sorley, A Better War, to Mark um, Meyer's uh, Triumph Forsaken. I think that, that that distinction, you know, maybe it has some usefulness, but it's not not much really for me because I, I think that while it's probably true that the majority of historians are in one way or another critical of the American war and regard it as a as a mistake, the the different levels of uh, of critique are, are sort of all over the, the map. And and also and also I would say probably the the, the vast majority of scholarship, like most scholarship, is is actually pretty dispassionate and not really engaged in any real a morally fervent way with the um, with the passionate political and ideological uh, battles. So there isn't in the literature really this sort of the constant refighting of the war that that you might imagine. And I don't necessarily, by the way, think that's a a great thing. I think it's it's kind of there's kind of a false assumption. I think that uh, dispassionate uh, scholarship uh, necessarily brings us closer to historical. Reality. I think, in, in fact, when it, it, it can sanitize the past to such a degree that we kind of strip away all of the most meaningful, uh, at least the meaningful lived experience of the time, because this was if nothing if not a passionate and, and, and morally contested uh, history that we're studying. So I think the sort of the, the simple pro-war, anti-war d- dichotomy doesn't really do just do justice to the enormous body and complexity and, and uh, uh, of these various. Uh, arguments, and I would say the one other thing about the the, um, the sort of the revisionist uh, pro-war arguments. W- one of the issues that I have with that, a good criticism I-, I would make, is that their arguments often uh, hinge on a kind of counterfactual argument. And much of it is a kind of if-only style of history. Uh, if if uh, and. And, and so as, a, as opposed to just sort of uh, uh, trying to get a better understanding of the history as it actually unfolded, their arg- arguments will in effect say, if only we had, say, for example, stuck with Nodenzium, or if only we had waged a sm- smarter, more targeted counterinsurgency instead of using such a blunt instrument, or conversely, if we had been actually more ruthless in our bombing attacks on, on say, North Vietnam and not... A, and not paid so much attention to the war in the South. So the people have a different, you know, set of prescriptions about how the war might have turned out differently. But in my mind, it doesn't really help us understand how the war actually unfolded. And to go to your question about the inside outside the academy, I, I, I think it's um, it is outside the academy where you do find uh, more of these uh, if only type books. You know that the war uh, should have been fought, uh, could have been won if only we had done. Uh, X, Y, or Z, 
Or you also have a set of books outside of the academy by sort of military history people that constitute what I guess I would refer to as a kind of military antiquarianism that is an interest in, in really just um, 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 documenting, but also commemorating uh, a unit or a particular time in the war uh, in sort of step-by-step chronology of, of uh, military uh, op- operations. Uh, but for me, and I, I won't go on too too long, but for me, the actually more interesting and exciting change in historiography in the, over the last 20 years has been the move of many younger scholars toward a more international perspective of, of the war, uh, going into other countries' archives, learning languages, learning Vietnamese in particular, a lot of these younger scholars. So that really has enriched the literature. And though for my purposes in this book, which really is focused more on an understanding of how the war entered American culture and consciousness and affected our, our foreign policy and our, and our national identity, I relied less on that new international history than on a, a major shift in the study of American foreign policy, which is sometimes known as the so-called cultural turn. Uh, and it's really been taking place over the last 20 years where where scholars have increasingly thought about uh, how ideas about, say, for example, gender or race uh, or uh, religion or film uh, have helped to shape public understandings of foreign, not just public understandings of foreign policy, but but even at the decision-making level. So if I start reeling off titles, I'm sure I'll, I, I will regret it because I'll exclude so many people. But, you know, I, I could mention, you know, a, a, a few. I was certainly helped by the work of uh, Jim Fisher on this guy, Tom Dooley, Christina Klein's book, Cold War Orientalism, Robert Dean's Imperial uh, Brotherhood, Seth Jacobs' work on Noden ZM, and Patrick Hagopian's book on the um, Vietnam War and American memory. So there are lots of others, but the, those are those are people that kind of reflect that broadening of um, the way we think uh, practice diplomatic history, which which was um, for a long time sort of one of the, the I think the last fields um, in U.S. history to kind of, uh, broaden the way it, it examined the past. Mm-hmm. Thank you, Chris. That's really that's really helpful. Um, well, I, as you were mentioning sort of dispassionate historiography, it it certainly felt to me when I read American Reckoning, uh, I I recognized your voice certainly as a voice of disciplined passion in in that book. Uh, And let me read to you one of the early statements in the book. I want to explore the ways the war changed our national self-perception. And uh, I mean, the whole book is about that, and you can't rehearse all of that for listeners. But um, can you give us a kind of uh, roadmap of of some of these major transformations that you see? Yeah, ab- absolutely. Uh, you know, there were two histories that were, I thought, um, really unfamiliar to younger people that I was meeting over the last 15, 20 years even. You know, not just students, but I have a bunch of friends who are in their 40s, quite a bit younger than I am. And um, I I wanted to recover for people like that um, what I thought had been lost. One was the what I would call this extraordinary awakening of the 1960s in in, in which basically uh, 
uh, every conventional wisdom and every authority was uh, fundamentally questioned and, and challenged, and, and the war was very much uh, at, at the heart of that, uh, so much so that, just to cite one uh, example, there was a 1971 poll that showed that not only did 71% of Americans conclude that the war in Vietnam had been a mistake, but a remarkable 58% had come to the conclusion that it was immoral, mm. uh, which is quite striking. And, and then I also thought that in order to understand how profoundly uh, um, Americans of all kinds had really begun to, uh, to, to question um, the Vietnam War, you had to you had to actually go back farther into the late 40s and 50s to try to recover um, just how broad the, uh, the faith uh, in the American government and in this concept of American exceptionalism, how, how broad that was. That really was the heyday of this idea that the United States is um, uh, everywhere and forever a, a force for good in the world, that we are the good guys of, of history, that we always stand on the side of uh, freedom and democracy and, and human rights. That, uh, that idea of American exceptionalism is obviously very, very deep uh, in our history, but I, I think it reached a, a kind of uh, apotheosis or, or, or you know, sort of heyday in the uh, 15 or 20 years after World War, World War II. So the, the, the basic argument of the book is that the Vietnam War, in my view, more than any other event in our history, fundamentally shattered that broad faith in American exceptionalism. And then what's so interesting about the decades after the war is the various ways in which our policymakers and uh, popular culture uh, try to uh, recobble some form of American exceptionalism back together again, sort of like uh, Humpty Dumpty. And it's, uh, it's a project of recovery and restoration, not entirely successful. I think it produces a, a different form uh, of American exceptionalism, one that's uh, more fragile, um, more def more defensive and uh, and rest uh, rest in a in a way that was kind of unprecedented on this underlying uh, idea that uh, America had become the victim of these inexplic inexplicable forces of uh, foreign hatred around the world and that we were we were sort of a more embattled country whereas the Whereas the 1950s, and this doesn't necessarily make it better, was still a sort of, I think, in my mind, a dangerous view, but it had a more idealistic underpinning, a sense that we really could reach out to the world and they would welcome our support and our ideas. So that that's sort of the, uh, it in a, in a fairly brief way. But. Yeah, thank you. Give us a, a couple of examples, Chris, of the of this turn of the way that we sought um, in public culture uh, to to recobble together this sense of American exceptionalism. Yeah, I I think it uh, it begins actually their 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 efforts to resurrect it even as the war is going on, but certainly uh, as early as 1975 at war's end, uh, President Ford and and others are are saying in order to reestablish. American pride and power. We really have to put the war behind us. It's 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 really finished for us. And and that actually made a certain sense. I mean, most Americans on all political sides um, had had concluded that the the war was a a catastrophe. And we we really did. I mean, there was no great urge to re re-examine all that. So a certain amount of that um, willful amnesia is not surprising. Uh, but in the Reagan years, it, it takes a different turn. It's not just sort of we need to move on. 
I think he quite shrewdly uh, persuaded a lot of people that um, we need to kind of reimagine the war. Mm. And not everybody, you know, he of course famously said that he thought it was a noble war that should have been fought and could have been won had American soldiers not been, quote, denied permission to win. I don't happen to think that most Americans bought that argument. Even many of his own supporters, I, I think, probably uh, believed that the war was unwinnable. Um, however, he did uh, persuade a lot of people that we that the, the war had diminished uh, our our power and prestige, and at the very least, we really needed to uh, rebuild our military and uh, respect it more uh, fully. And uh, gradually, this idea began to surface in American culture that one of the most shameful things about the war, and perhaps uh, even the most shameful thing, I think that many of my, my students had kind of uh, began to internalize this in the late 80, by the late 80s and into the 90s, uh, the most shameful thing was the way we treated our returning veterans uh, from Vietnam. And therefore, when you, when you, to the extent that people are persuaded of that, obviously, that keeps us from thinking about what we did in and to Vietnam and the damage we did there and you know all the details of that destruction and focus instead on uh, the, the bad things that the war had done to, done to us. And so to, in other words, transform the war into an American tragedy, which I really do think uh, strongly characterizes at least the, the collective or, or popular um, memory of the war quite apart from all the scholarship that I think much of which does kind of uh, try to preserve a, a more critical view of the war. Um, and, and the image of veterans as, uh, as the, the victims of shabby treatment was very, very much uh, a part of that re, repackaging of the war. I would just say, you know, it's true, of course, that veterans were treated shabbily. Um, primarily, I would argue, by the government, first of all, for uh, for, for lying to soldiers about the origins of the war and what they might experience there and, and and lying about their own lost faith in our ability to win. I mean, by the mid-1960s, most policymakers had, had concluded that you know, at the very least all we can really do is avert defeat. And, um, and then, of course, by the way, they were tr uh, not given sufficient support um, either uh, medically or psychologically upon their return to the country. And I think corporate America fell down on the job, too, by not doing nearly enough to hire and train returning veterans. There was a very pervasive and nasty set of stereotypes that were uh, pretty common in popular culture in the 70s that depicted Vietnam veterans as wacko, drug-addled, and violence-prone. And I think uh, so I think employers um, were scared off by a lot of that, uh, those stereotypes. And uh, even the uh, conventional, uh, the big veterans groups like uh, Veterans of Foreign Wars and the American Legion, many Vietnam veterans will tell you that they did not feel at all welcomed by those groups and, and therefore needed, needed to form their own. And the anti, uh, but what, what's odd about that is the uh, predominant uh, uh, abuser, according to many Americans by the 1980s, 1990s, uh, it, it was uh, felt were anti-war protesters who'd somehow um, were, it was said, uh, blamed ordinary soldiers for all that was wrong about the war. And, you know, there's no doubt in my mind that, as with any social movement, there are some creepy people who will do and say nasty things and, and, and uh, certainly gave veterans a hard time. But it, it, to, to suggest that the, this was the, the, the most common 
perception of the anti-war movement um, serves a very important political function, which is you know to demonize uh, all of the anti-war movement, which was unprecedented in its, in its size and its uh, diversity, and also increasingly included a significant number of Vietnam veterans themselves, who by 1970 and 71 were really some of the key leaders uh, of the anti-war movement. Yeah. So, yeah, this whole, you know, kind of that we've learned, you know, this way for now, we're still with us, this sort of knee-jerk assumption that our, our duty as citizens is to routinely uh, thank everybody in uniform for their service. But to, to my mind, that's really a kind of uh, empty gesture that uh, doesn't honor the real complexity of the lives of people that serve in the military. And, you know, uh, we'd be better off to ask them, hey, would you tell us about your service? Mm. Not just thank you, but then then there could be an engagement, a conversation, a dialogue, and we could learn a lot from these people. Because I I would just say add here that I don't think at any point in our history have we had such a a gulf between uh, the civilian and the military. You know, we rely now on this tiny, tiny less than one percent of our population. Uh, to serve in the military, tour after tour, and in, in our name. But uh, it is possible for us, although living in in wartime, uh, to be essentially ob- oblivious uh, to it, unless we happen to know someone who's um, deployed. Because, as you say, it's outsourced. Uh, in, it is now. yes, um, yeah. I'm thinking of uh, in more contemporary expression, David Finkel's wonderful book, "Thank You for Your Service," that. Uh, he he traces the agonizing history of uh, these veterans that he's come to know from Iraq um, and gives a sense of what their service has been and continues to be, putting a kind of depth to this, as, as you suggested. There are a couple for um, many people today, too, kind of hidden histories that you write some about, Chris, uh, w- one more than the other, but you mention uh, the continuing military ambivalence uh, about the war throughout the war. And I wondered if you could say something about that. And then also, uh, again, for for younger people today, the hidden history of the bombing, most of which occurred in the South, the country that we were supposedly trying to help. Yeah, I, I, I think um, the w- one thing to note is that the turn against the war in the 1960s took many years. Uh, this was an era in which critical uh, information uh, that challenged official explanations uh, were not a click or two away on, an, uh, on the Internet. Uh, obviously, we uh, people who were looking for Critical information had to rely on small publications. That's why teach-ins were so important on campuses. And only gradually uh, did the media uh, begin to, uh, while while there were images of the war, uh, it would be a mistake to think that the media was out front and more anti-war than the public. Uh, I think every reliable study of that, including a big one published by the Center for Military History, has concluded that the, that the, that the media really um, was uh, really just sort of tracking public opinion. Uh, but yes, Americans did gradually see some fundamental uh, uh, challenges to the way the war had been uh, described, and it became ever more clear that we, we weren't actually fighting on behalf of a, of a democracy in South Vietnam, that the regimes that we were supporting were uh, authorita- authoritarian, uh, and eventually... Um, uh, led uh, often by generals, 
and repressive of their own people and not broadly popular. I mean, just to pick one of the most iconic images of the war that goes all the way back to 1963, those images of Buddhist monks um, self-immolating themselves in the most dramatic kind of protest of the American-backed government in Vietnam raises an obvious question. Many Americans understood that we were supporting a government that was uh, challenged by this communist-led insurgency out in the countryside, these Viet Cong. And so, you know, I, I thought that's what we were doing. But now we have uh, images of these uh, peaceful uh, Buddhists protesting the uh, this, this Catholic government of, uh, backed by the United States that, that sort of raised this what was a crucial question, which is will this government that we're supporting ever have the sufficient support of its own people to uh, survive uh, without massive American troops? And then, of course, once we really take over the war in 1965 and massively escalate it, uh, it includes uh, some of the most, uh, well, really the most intensive bombing in military history. As you point out, we dropped um, 4 million tons of bombs on South Vietnam, the, the country we claim to be defending from aggression, and that was uh, itself almost twice as many bombs as had been dropped in all of World War II. I think Americans, maybe even to this day, have the assumption that most of our bombing was done over North Vietnam, because that really was, of course, the, the home of a, of a fully uh, communized uh, uh, society. But in fact, um, four times more bombs were dropped on South Vietnam than North Vietnam. And those um, critics who believe that we didn't try to fight hard enough, they're, they're, the one uh, thing they can point to with some, with some justification is that there were constraints on the bombing of the North. Lyndon Johnson did actually... Uh, somewhat micromanaged the air war in the north because he was desperately afraid that if it were too it went to, escalated too fast and too far toward the Chinese border, the Chinese might enter the war as they had in the Korean War, and uh, he, he he was really concerned about that. But the but the air war in the south was almost completely unconstrained and included the use of these gigantic B-52 strategic bombers, the so-called Strato Fortress, which had been designed in the 50s to drop hydrogen bombs, but were retrofitted for Vietnam to, to be able to hold up to 30 tons, a single aircraft to hold 30 tons of conventional bombs or, or, or napalm or even cluster bombs, these, these bombs that are purely anti-personnel weapons that that hold hundreds of smaller bomb, uh, uh, tiny baseball-sized bombs that when they hit and explode, send uh, out in, uh, this huge radius, these tiny dart-like, either steel balls or these sort of dart-like fleshettes, they were called, that would scatter and could uh, penetrate deeply into your skin. It might not kill you, but would uh, create great suffering and, and require other people uh, to take uh, care of you. So yeah, this, these kinds of realities were entering American consciousness and I think are now largely forgotten. And even the most uh, you know, extreme uh, and most obviously troubling uh, event that was uh, exposed in 1969, the My Massacre, you, know, you, you, can, you can ask students today, college classes, uh, how many have heard of it, and be shocked to find uh, how few hands go up or with at least any detailed knowledge. A number of them may say, well, it was mentioned in high school, but I don't really know any of the details. I don't, certainly didn't, don't know that this group of American infantry, infantrymen went into a South Vietnamese village and proceeded over a period of four hours to, to kill at close range uh, roughly 500 
unarmed and un- unresisting uh, civilians, mostly women, children, and older men. So students today, this is ancient history. It was 50 years ago. Even many of their parents weren't born in 55, uh, 65 when this massive escalation begins. So in some ways, it makes them more uh, open to education because they're, they are actually very curious. I get 180 students uh, every year in my class on the American war in Vietnam, and, and um, their, their eyes uh, can, be, can be opened to, 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 learn, to learn about this history. Hmm. Hmm. Thank you. Uh, l- let me ask you about a kind of American literature about the war uh, that, that you mentioned briefly, and I'd love to hear you talk about it more. And it's this rich literature of uh, return and reconciliation, American vets, all, all kinds, going back to, to Vietnam. Uh, that's one part of it. And uh, you mentioned in the book Wayne Carlin's wonderful book, Wandering Souls, uh, which is such a gem. And then I'm also thinking of a more domestic kind of literature of reconciliation that between fathers and sons there's such interesting titles um of, of fathers who had fought in world war ii and that's their template and sons who either fought in vietnam but their template and their memories are in tension or did not fight and then obvious tensions emerge can you talk some about those two two literatures Sure. Ed. Yeah, this is this is a a great subject, and I don't at all uh, do justice to it in this book. More interested was I to try 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 to capture sort of the more common or dominant ways in which uh, Vietnam has uh, continued in, in American consciousness. So a lot a lot of this great literature, unfortunately, has not penetrated too deeply into our culture, and I wish it would. If if I ever were to write another book about the war, I think this would be the subject mm-hmm. because it was. It really has been uh, spearheaded by Vietnam veterans, uh, and I mean that in the broadest sense, not just American veterans of the war, but by Viet- Vietnamese and their efforts really going all the way back to the early 80s, but especially in, in the 90s and beyond, these efforts at genuine um, uh, peace and reconciliation to, to meet each other, to learn about their uh, cultures and their common experiences of the war. And not just to go over as tourism, though that's an uh, as tourists, though that's an important and interesting phenomenon in itself. And, and many Vietnam veterans have found it extremely uh, thera- therapeutic. Um, uh, but uh, but many others uh, have actually established ongoing and, and permanent collaborations with with Vietnamese. Uh, I, I know of a whole variety of artistic, you know, uh, collaborations around um, the fine arts of, among writers. Wayne Carlin has made many connections with Vietnamese writers and helped with uh, to bring books uh, into uh, translation in this this country. And the um, NGOs that are concerned about um, medical care for the Vietnamese, and this extraordinary American veteran named Chuck Searcy, who has essentially lived in Hanoi since the early 90s, most of the time actually has this project called Project Renew, the mandate of which is to try to um, remove as much unexploded ordnance from the Vietnamese countryside as possible. Um, And it's clear now that tens of thousands of Vietnamese have died and and tens of thousands more have been maimed uh, by farmers uh, inadvertently kicking up um, uh, uh, some unexploded ordnance that that, that detonates years and even decades later or or children actually finding and picking up one of those small uh, cluster bombs that I described and having it uh, go off. So 
it doesn't redeem the war itself, but it, th- th- these are a set of, of stories that, that represent, uh, you know, if anything good can be said to have come out of the war, uh, a much more positive kind uh, of, of story. And you have, you know, um, veterans, I think, are often miscast in media representations. I remember at the time when relations with Vietnam were finally normalized in 1994 after tw- 20 years of, of quite severe uh, economic embargo some of the leaders uh, it was sort of interesting uh, partners <laughs> of course corporate america was behind it they, they wanted to get in there and get at those markets and that, so they were an important voice for normalization but it was, a lot of uh, vietnam veterans were actually calling for it too which was counter to the media image which would have us believe that most veterans really were not uh, did not want to go ahead until there was a quote unquote full accounting of every last american missing in action and uh, I think that was a distorted, um, a distorted view. Uh, and in fact, even many of the veterans who have been deeply committed to trying to recover the remains of American missing have actually begun to collaborate um, for now 20 years, uh, almost 20 years, with the Vietnamese on trying to share information. If you can help us find ours, we have information. And in fact, uh, uh, there have been there are American veterans who remember being on operations where big plows were used to create mass graves uh, for the Vietnamese enemy killed, and uh, some of them have been able to to relocate, actually help them find some of those graves. So, the some 300,000 missing in action of the Vietnamese can start to be uh, recovered. Uh, an extraordinary number when you consider that ours uh, were. Um, well, officially, uh, 25, about 2,500, though half of those were initially labeled uh, killed in action, bodies not recovered. So, but in any case, um, that, that's just yet another example of the kind of collaboration. And, and, and these sort of things have produced these works like Wandering Souls and you know, this, the, this Vietnamese book that is now being taught in a lot of classes, and I teach it myself, called Last Night I Dreamed of Peace. And, and, and both of these books uh, really had their origins in the recovery of, um, of, of, of diaries and papers uh, off the, the bodies of um, the Vietnamese killed in that war in the effort to um, repatriate uh, those uh, documents and uh, help uh, those families establish some closure over the death uh, of, of their children or relatives. And so, as you say, yeah, there's this this great both literature of and about, but also the the creation of person-to-person and organizational collaborations. That is a truly remarkable uh, post-war story. Hmm. Hmm. Thank you, Chris. So maybe a good place for us to uh, to conclude th- this conversation, uh, and hopefully, listeners will be will be moved to read American Reckoning. You write toward the end of the book. If the legacy of the Vietnam War is to offer any guidance, we need to complete the moral and political reckoning it awakened. The past is always speaking to us if we only listen. Uh, Obviously, the past speaks differently to different people, but um, your voice in in this book, what's your sense about the legacy of the war that needs to offer us guidance today? Well, you know, as you indicated, it continues to be deeply contested. Of course, history itself is is an interpretive and contested discipline. It's not a search for fixed and uh, unchallenged uh, uh, facts. It, it will always and ever and forever be um, contested, and a particularly controversial uh, histories like this one. Though I do hold out hope that, uh, at least in the long term. Um, 
I hope people will come to at least engage some of the ideas I try to put across in this book. And at the heart of it really is this bottom line sense of mind that we really do need to dispense with this idea of American exceptionalism, both for several reasons. First, I don't think the historical record really supports it. Uh, and I also think that it, uh, e- even if you, d- you did believe that we are the greatest country ever in world history and a force for good, it certainly inflames more foreign animosity than than uh, uh, than friendship. Uh, who wants to to have American exceptionalism sort of uh, uh, stuck in their face? And th- and third, I just think the effort to um, uh, maintain um, military preeminence around the globe. Is uh, economically unsustainable. I mean, uh, there were at the end of the Cold War. I think there were uh, many Americans, including uh, self-described conservatives like Andrew Bacevich, who really thought that there would be a peace dividend, that there would be a substantial drawdown of the American American military, one could say, imperial presence around uh, the world. But that didn't happen, and in fact, it has been ratcheted up um, in recent decades. There really is has been a premium on what is sometimes referred to in the, in the military circles as full-spectrum dominance, uh, which means that uh, is our national goal to dominate uh, the seas, the land, cyberspace, outer space, uh, really be able to have such dominance that uh, no other power, uh, national or subnational, would, would um, uh, ever conceive of attacking us directly. Thank you, Chris, very much. We have been talking today with Professor Christian G. Appy of the University of Massachusetts at Amherst, Department of History. Chris is the author of three books on the Vietnam War, Working Class War, American Combat Soldiers in Vietnam, Patriots, the Vietnam War Remembered from All Sides, and a book released by Viking in 2015, American Reckoning, the Vietnam War, and Our National Identity. Chris, thanks so much for taking the time to do this. Thanks to you, Ed. I enjoyed it. This podcast is produced by the Journal of American History, the leading scholarly publication and the journal of record in American history. Visit us on the web at www.journalofamericanhistory.org. Support the journal by becoming a member of the Organization of American Historians. To join, call us at 812-855-7311 or visit us online at www.oah.org. In addition to receiving the journal four times a year, OAH members have access to a growing number of member benefits, ranging from discounts on a wide variety of insurance products to discounted subscriptions to the ACLS Humanities eBook Library to reduce registration fees for the annual meeting held every spring. Thank you for listening to the Journal of American History podcast. Please join us in June for our next episode. If you have any comments or questions, please send an email to jahcast at oah.org.